Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, tonight, Cummings launches a brand new segment. He and the team debate the merits of an overlooked classic opera. Two-minute drill. Salzburg may be a little hotter than expected this year. Plus, are the Mets pay-to-listen concerts striking a sour note for some in the opera world? We'll tell you why. We'll give you our hot takes. It's an all-male show tonight. Just the boys. Just the boys. Just the boys. There is likely not going to be any college football played in the United States. Oh, you don't say. In 20. <laughs> I mean, I don't think college football is played outside of the United States, so I guess that just means there's no college football. Cummings is teasing me, but the fact of the matter is that conferences still like the SEC in the southern part of this country are still trying to play football. That is insane. I mean, it, it, it is very insane. And they can try all they want, but uh, I don't think it's going to last for long if they do try. You know, I, I don't often say this, but Tide, please don't roll. Let's talk some opera. After further review, our panel challenges preconceived notions about opera. Tonight we are going to be talking about uh, an opera that I won't say is my favorite opera of all time, but definitely is better than most people think it is. <laughs> and that is the opera La Juive. Um... If you know one thing about the Alevi opera La Juive, it's probably that it has an unfortunate title. It's very difficult to translate. Um, I'm going to translate it as the Jewish woman. And just know that, like, as recently as probably the 60s and 70s, they were translating it that um, with a word that I don't really want to say on the air because it's kind of insulting. Um, if you know two things about La Juive, you know that. And you also probably know that the opera hinges on several cases of mistaken identity and ends with the lead soprano being thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. But that's just probably... a, a, that's a classic opera ending. I love the old boiling oil trick. You're like, how are we going to turn, how are we going to turn this up to 11? I know. <laughs> Frying. Uh, but what you probably don't know is that it has a lot of really wonderful moments and was actually quite respected in its day and popular even into the 20th century, like beyond when we generally consider the death of the popularity of French grand opera. Uh, and it really should be a more respected work in the canon. And in order to look at why it's not, I think we need to look a little bit at both the genre in which it fits and the historical context that surround this work. So when you say French grand opera, how would you define what that is? That's a very good question. Uh, it does depend on what era you're talking about. Usually when people okay. are talking about grand opera, they, French grand opera in terms of the bigness sense, they're talking about um, what was really popular in the first half of the 19th century. So from like the 1830s until the 1860s or 70s. Uh, but it does have a long history that goes all the way back to, like, the French court under Louis XIV and the Lully operas. Uh, and what's what spectacle was really the, a big name of the game here. It was mm. important that these were spectacular pieces. They were huge. They had huge budgets. The scenery was very important to the opera. So, And they, and they had to have um, a standard five-act structure to the play. Um, it was also required that these grand operas had a ballet, and it usually had to be in around the middle of the opera, so like Act Two, Act Three, uh, and it could not have spoken dialogue, unlike the opera comiques like Carmen. That that that's the big differentiation between the two of them. There are there are other differences too. And if you're lucky, um, there is an organ, like a church organ, in the orchestra, which there is in La Juive. Oh, nice! Uh, <laughs> a cynic, a synagogue. Oui, oui. Uh, <laughs> There are, uh, there are some other trends in these grand operas. They usually are, they're, they're usually, if not always, about 
historical topics or like historical topics kings explorers wars something where you could conceivably have armies of people on the stage and it would make sense um and because of this the the politics of these operas usually played a huge influence um the grand operas were tied really closely to the monarchy and in their their second iteration that we're talking about um they were they were really made popular by the bourgeoisie under Napoleon and the Bourbon Restoration. Oh, the so, bourgeoisie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so, like like everything with opera uh, and everything in the world, it, it, it comes down to like who had the money. And at mm. this time in French history, there was this newly emergent middle merchant class that had all the money, and they wanted to be entertained by these really spectacular pieces. Of, of theater. They were the box office smashes of their day. They, these were the Marvel movies that were going on yeah, in Paris. Sort of French grand opera cinematic universe, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because of that, like, they tend to be, I would say, more convoluted and complicated than your average opera because they had all these boxes to check. Um, there are other operas that are more convoluted than French grand operas. Like, I'm looking at you, Trovatore, with, with your... Um, <laughs> <laughs> with your babies swapped at birth and and also several cases of mistaken identity. Um, but it's a fair criticism of French Grand Opera to say that they rely on coincidence to drive the plot forward more than, like, actual human drama. There's a lot of just, like, people who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, people who are mistaken for being other people, misunderstandings, that kind of silliness that, like, a lot of other operatic and dramatic reformers tried to move away from French Grand Opera had no problem just like indulging in it. Um, and so they tend to be seen today as irredeemably over the top and silly. And uh, I do want to have a clip. I have a clip prepared. Uh, this is from Act 3, the big crowd scene that is at the center, the climax of this opera. Um, and this is what people are probably thinking of when you're talking about Grand Opera, but it's not just three hours of music like this. Uh, this is the this is June Anderson from the complete studio recording uh, and the chorus uh, singing the big fanfare that kicks off this huge crowd scene. <laughs> thrilling particularly if you're sitting there in the auditorium but i would not exactly... i would i would dare say grand yeah n- not exactly subtle pretty bombastic <laughs> um and that kind of bigness and flashiness i think are 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 real criticisms of the genre and we and we i'll stipulate to them um but the whole opera is not like that and he and there there are many parts where there's real human drama and this piece actually makes a really uh, powerful statement about the, the the politics of religion in France and just the religious intolerance that was going on in the eighteen in the nineteenth century um, by telling the story about medieval the medieval Holy Roman Empire. Mm. So the the opera premiered in eighteen thirty five by Fromental Alevi was the composer. He was a French Jewish composer and Eugène Scrib who wrote the libretto for almost every other French grand opera. That known to man, uh, <laughs> sort of the Mark Campbell of his day. Yeah, the hardest, the, the hardest working man <laughs> in Paris at the time. Uh, it was considered 
to be one of the greatest French operas pre-Carmen until the 20th century where it completely fell out of favor, and we will get to that. Um, A brief synopsis, as brief as I can make it, um, (laughs) against the backdrop of religious intolerance in the 15th century, uh, Eliezer, who's the Jewish goldsmith, and his uh, and his daughter Re- Rachel have their lives upended when Prince Leopold falls in love with Rachel. There's a series of disguises, mistaken identities, and betrayals, but eventually Rachel re- reveals that they've been having this affair, and she and her father are condemned to death by the Cardinal de Brogni. Rachel ends up uh, retracting her accusations against Leopold in order to save his life. And the princess Eudoxy promises to pardon them if they convert to Christianity, but they refuse. Eleazar reveals to the cardinal that his daughter, who he has long assumed to be dead, is in fact alive. But the secret of where she is will die with Eleazar if he dies. Rachel also refuses to convert when brought in front of the whole crowd. And after she is killed, Eleazar reveals that Rachel was the daughter all along. And he also climbs into the cauldron of boiling oil as the chorus sings that they have, quote, avenged themselves against the Jews. (laughs) So Rachel dying is not the climax of the opera? That's it's the conclusion of the opera. I mean, climax and like the in the 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 five act structure, like act one is you is usually silly because people who were at the opera it's just introduction and the music is not usually very memorable because not everyone was there yet so they wouldn't put the good stuff in see Faust Uh, act one act two is where you really dig deep into the conflict act three there's almost always this huge crowd scene where something goes wrong think of like Romeo and Juliet that's where the duel is that's where he gets banished Act, act four is where you try to work through it, and then in act five, it almost always ends in catastrophe. Hmm. The, just because there are five acts doesn't mean that they're always longer than other operas. Like, none of them are anywhere near as long as Tristan and Isolde. Because <laughs> <It>, <laughs> sometimes the acts are only, like, 20 minutes. But it's just hmm. that the structure was very important to the, the, the producers. So it was really important to stick with it, and sometimes that is a detriment, but also, you know where to you know where the good parts are going to be. So I just want to say, you can I, sort of a, a bow out for a second and then come back right, right. Like, okay, this is when this is happening. As somebody who has had a severe oil burn as a result of a cooking accident, uh, I want to say, you don't want to change your mind about this potential, this type of suicide uh, after the suicide has begun. Like if you're going to boil yourself in oil, just go for it. Just finish. Don't, don't change your mind. <laughs> That's a bad way to There's go. Right yeah. Back. yeah, exactly. So this opera was seen very much at the time as a plea for religious tolerance and an indictment of the pres- of the prejudices within European society with the Jewish composer and it's telling the story of how these how these persecuted people are driven to not not only are they driven to their own deaths by the prejudices of the masses they constantly are be- are called on to rise above that strife and and typically do you know, Rachel recants her accusations of Prince Leopold in order to save his life. I will stipulate that the trappings on balance do tend to weigh these operas down a little bit, but this opera does contain stunning music that, that really brings this, this theme to life. Uh, and Alex Ross wrote uh, when, when, this, when these operas were being revived like 20 years ago at, in Vienna in the Met, uh, talked about it by saying... Uh, for all its mel- melodramatic trappings, a profoundly unsentimental story in which hate engenders hate, Rachel's father, the long-suffering Eleazar, becomes as fanatical as the Christians who denounce him. Bajweev starts off like a creaky period piece, but ends up revealing more fundamental human ugliness than audiences may want to see. Hmm. Um, just because the, there is structure that the, that the piece is constructed around, and, and it's stricter than we necessarily as audiences are comfortable with today in our entertainment. We, we, we don't tend to want to see the scaffolding that the stories are told against. That doesn't mean that the, the stories and the lessons are not important and interesting or that the composers were not able to make something more of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those music dramatic highlights, I mean, first of all, the, the tenor aria that, that's at the end of Act 4 uh, for Eliezer, it really highlights how complicated he is as a figure. 
he he is at once righteous and full of love for his adopted daughter and willing to die for her uh, and for his faith. But he also contains some like Shylockian anti-Semitic tropes. And the, the part of the opera that really did survive is his big aria, Rachel Comte du Seigneur. Um, and we're going to listen now to a clip of Richard Tucker singing this from the studio highlights recording that was released uh, in the 1970s. singing to, to draw on that uh, folk music tradition of the Jewish faith. Um, and, and the text of the aria and this performance in particular, Richard Tucker connected very strongly with this role, um, shows how he's torn between the faith and love of his daughter and, and his resolve not to um, reveal that she was the, the daughter of Cardinal de Brogni is brought on by the shouts of hatred that come from the crowd. Uh, that, that would happen right after the, this aria. It is really plaintive. It, it's so heartfelt, and it, it's a stunning piece of music. And French music in these French grand operas are often criticized as making it sound like every character sounds exactly the same. All the music sounds exactly the same. It all sounds just like pretty Meyer beer courtiers. And that's definitely <laughs> not the case when you are comparing the two lead women. The music of Rachel is a lot more declamatory. It's straightforward. It draws on that French Baroque kind of sense of like the words are the most important. The vocalism is is secondary to the words. And that comes through with her aria at the beginning of Act Two, where she is waiting for her her lover, Prince Leopold, uh, who she knows as Samuel, to come and, and just waiting with bated breath. Uh, this is a clip of that aria, Il va venir. He, he's going to come.
so that that's from that starts from the middle of the aria. And goes she sounds it, but it just, incredible. When we just had, yeah. wasn't she the star of the uh, Frau Schatten recording too that we had? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> playing all the hits. I just need to like go back and listen to all her recordings because she sounds incredible. They need to hire her to sing these roles that no one else sings. Yeah. <laughs> so how many people are out there with with Rachel in their repertoire? Uh, but just the way that, that that hesitation kind of boils over. Uh, but it never feels elaborate or unearned. And once again, the use of Woodwinds here to add the suspense and isolation into her character. So you take that music and you contrast it with uh, what we heard in the first clip, the Princess Eudoxie, who is singing and trilling and going all the way up to high uh, and and just all over the place. In Act 4, Eudoxie comes to confront Rachel and she says that you need, that if you recant this accusation of my husband, he won't be excommunicated and, and killed. So when she's doing that, it's kind of like that Don Giovanni thing where how he, whenever he's talking to a different character, he he takes on the voice of that character. Eudoxie modulates her vocal stylings to sound more like Rachel's so that they kind of come together and are able to echo each other this duet. <laughs> Isakowski from the Matt performance, the Matt revival that they did of this in 2003. So uh, the color tour soprano is Eudoxie? Uh, yes. Okay. And so she sings high and she does like Italianate vocalism, which signaled probably to the French audience back in the 19th century that she was not the person you're supposed to like because she sings in a different style. And she even has a polonaise earlier in the opera. Oh, so yeah. she's just she's just an, an an innocent, naive little thing who doesn't who doesn't truly understand uh, the forces of hate that she's dealing with. But but when they come together for this duet, it, it it's quite powerful because uh, as we'll hear in the next clip, this this next clip is what happens at the end of the previous act. And this is the big scene where Rachel and makes the makes her accusations and they are all condemned to death. So first you hear, we'll hear, we'll hear the blood and thunder of the Cardinal de Brogni making that condemnation. And then the, the chorus really kicks it off to end with a bang. You've got lots of low notes. That was uh, Frucho Furlanetto, also from the Met performance, trying to bring the wrath of God down. Yeah, it felt very like Simon Bocanegra or like King Philip or something like that moment. So, And after he does that and says, on, on you be anathema. Oh, I the, love that. The scene, the scene just explodes into 
something that can that's like not only a toe tapper but can also give you chills. Yeah. And this is the this is the that other side of the coin when you're talking about spectacle. We always talk about spectacle as being just a negative thing, but all operas rely on spectacle and scale in order to make an impression. And when it really works, when you use it at the right moments, when you're using it for the sake of drama instead of just for the sake of budgets, it can make a big impact. And this is what comes just after that condemnation to really kick us into intermission. We have to bring back anathema. You know, I've got to make anathema a, a more common saying again. It's so great. <laughs> Stop trying to make anathema a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fetch. Yeah. should not be anathema to like French Grand Opera, <laughs> but it was for one Richard Wagner. Uh, I knew he'd be sneaking in here somewhere. His aversion to this style and this genre is legendary. Um, and part of that comes from his his essays, or which really at some points border on screeds against specifically um, Alevi's rival uh, Giacomo Meyerbeer. And they, I think, are they are a big reason why why French Grand Opera is seen as being inherently worse than other genres of opera. And Wagner's indictment of the genre, which still gets used today, is that it was all effects without causes, big moments with no depth or no truth lying beneath them. And this didn't appear in the in the infamous Jewishness in music. It was in opera and drama. But the points that he makes in those two essays are very similar, uh, just about how just really tearing down these composers who were popular in France at the time. Uh, And and it's kind of inescapable that one feeds into the other. And while there are parts of, of these musical works where, you know, I could do with a few fewer five ones at the conclusion of the aria. (laughs) It's just like, we get it. That's a, that's a few too many exclamation points. Maybe you should edit some out. It's not really true of the genre as a whole. And it's so broad that it could be really applied to any work of art. That, just that just because like our audience might process. not know what you're talking about. When you say 5-1, you're saying like the way a bel canto aria ends um, domi- not, dominant tonic. Yeah, and it's... It's not just that it that it cadences one time; they cadence like twenty five times. Oh, okay. It, uh, like, I mean, like Beethoven symphonies honestly do the same thing, where right. you hear five one, dun, 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 and it just over whom, and over and over again. It, Wagner <laughs> idolized Beethoven, by the way, so he's really throwing some uh, stones in glass houses here. Exactly, uh, and the, these these aesthetic criticisms so much are really born out of other things. And when you take into account that Wagner desperately wanted to be accepted by the Parisian audiences, and they didn't really think very highly of his work at the time, this essay, these essays to me always read more as sour grapes over not being invited into the cool kids gang. And then he, and then it gets dressed up with racist propaganda. It very much has the, the sort of uh, 
fine. I didn't want to play with you guys anyway, sort of a <laughs> schoolyard vibe to him. Exactly. And then you fast forward 40 years and Wagner has become absolutely idolized in music, in mm. the musical com uh, compositional community. And all of his opinions look now like they're fact, but mm. they're, they're, they're just his opinion. He really thought really, he didn't really think very highly of Italian opera either. I mean, he didn't really think highly of anyone except Wagner. So. <laughs> he did actually uh, admire many parts of La Juive as an opera, particularly at the beginning when the organ, uh, uh, the, the very in introduction of the piece starts with an organ and you can hear a church choir in the distance. And it's hypothesized that that is the influence for his, the beginning of um, Meistersinger. So it's not that he wasn't influenced by these by these composers. In fact, uh, Rienzi, his opera, is sometimes referred to as Meyerbeer's greatest opera. <laughs> but these criticisms really have sunk into the collective consciousness, and they paint the whole category with a broad brush. And to say that they're all fireworks and they're all flashy and they're all spectacle really belies pieces of these uh, of the of this work in particular that are very intimate and very special. And this is an opera that is a powerful statement about the corrupting power of hatred in the abstract. And it, in order to have that corrupting power, you have to have moments of tenderness, too. And you really feel that specifically at the beginning of Act 2 during the Passover Seder scene. So here is a clip of that. Was that Neil Shikoff? That was Neil Shikoff. Mm. Uh, and uh, this role in particular, uh, when, when this last got revived and, and, and got paid attention to, I think it was in 2003 that both Vienna and the Met did, did a production of this. Neil Shikoff played the lead in both of those. Mm -hmm. And he was the son of a cantor and really connected very, very deeply to, to this opera on a personal level. And actually, that's quite a similar story to Richard Tucker, the tenor we played earlier. Both, both who were the two, they're the two big, the big, the two big proponents of this opera, and they connect to it as Jewish American tenors. Hmm. And, and it's a work that needs a champion. What what this scene does is that it sets the Jewish characters apart, and in contrast with the Christian celebrations that have happened in the in earlier in the opera, that turn very quickly into this violent pogrom. There's this sense of reverence in this scene that also has quite a bit of tension as the, as the Holy Roman Empire prince is sitting there pretending that he is Jewish as well. So it's, there, I mean, you got dramatic irony, you got contrast, you know, what more do you want? And while Wagnerian German, Germanic opera has become seen as the most evolved genre of the form, that ignores moments like this that really work. Yeah, it feels sort of like... Uh like that quartet in William Tell or something like that. Like it's just like st time stands still and just have, you know, beautiful singing with, which actually does, I think is very dramatic at the same time. So I don't necessarily, you know, agree with that criticism that it's all, what did Wagner say? No, no substance. All Effects without cause. Yeah. Effects without causes. Yeah. And that brings me to the elephant in the room, which is it, the, the, the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the reason why this opera, I think, has fallen from favor is just 
the anti-Semitic and and racist history of the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, but mm. but it really hit hard in the 20th century, um, and just our tendency to forget and to memory hole things like this. While the opera is not by our modern standards an ideal representation of progressive religious acceptance, there are tropes that that, that you can that can be objected to. You know, it is important to remember that when it was written by a Jewish composer, the views of assimilation into this majority Catholic French society were very, were very different, and that this was seen kind of as moving the ball forward, e- even if there are some, some places where they didn't quite succeed in that. And most of the places where they didn't succeed happen in, in the character of Eleazar. It, he, he contains some tropes like being secretive and vengeful that can come off as, could come off as defamation if they aren't handled with a deft touch. And Neil Shikoff talks about how he de- how, how he dealt with the the possibility of that of it devolving into that by viewing Eliezer's flaws as a consequence of the intolerance that that he was raised in in that environment. He was driven to hatred by the hatred that he experienced, and that kind of that first of all that is how the world works <laughs> in mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And you know you don't need your protagon- you don't need the protagonist to be perfect people in order to connect with them. And there are there are other articles that have been written that notes that and Eliezer has his innate characteristics are his paternal love and his deep abiding faith and those are much he he really he as a character can be much more identified with those emotions overall than than the aspects of that that have come to him from having been wronged the jewish characters in the opera are regularly more enlightened and selfless than those who subjugate them they make sacrifices for themselves. They make sacrifices for themselves in order to save other people. And when it really comes down to it, the intolerance of the community is what is painted as the greater crime, and that's unmistakable when you're watching this opera. The the blame of what happened of this horrible tragedy falls on those who had the power to make a difference and didn't do so. Your Eudoxies, your Cardinal Stabrungi, your um home your high tenor prince who sings a really nice couplet and has a love duet and then vanishes into nothingness so i've mentioned this these these revivals in, that happened in 2003 a couple times and it had not been performed at the met since 1936 and a suspicious date yeah if you if you're familiar with world history that is a date that you know that's an era that you might recognize as some things that were happening in germany <laughs> and the work was banned in Germany in the 30s because it showed Jewish people in a positive light. And that anti-Semitism that was legally codified in Germany did not stop at the Atlantic Ocean because there was not an appetite for that kind of story. And so you end up in this kind of Ouroboros of a self-fulfilling prophecy here. Tastes shift, that's true. And operas come in and out of fashion. But there is a core of anti-Semitism at work with sidelining this opera because people in the 1930s were not interested in the, in the stories of Jewish people being terrorized and victimized. And when the work gets removed from circulation and the collective memory about operatic tastes fills that void of they're too flashy. There's not enough substance. We like the ring better. Um, Why should we do this? It's too expensive. It's too hard. Those are factors. It's not true. It's true, but it's a very convenient elision to ignore the fact that this is this is a story about people who are the victims of intolerance being pushed down, and that it's just one of many examples of how the stories of marginalized people, the, the stories themselves, can stay marginalized, and we in the in the artistic community can come up with many, many reasons why those stories have been marginalized that maybe have some merit, but there are plenty of parallels here to other operas. Like when was the last time you heard anyone talk about Trimanesha? Mm. That I, I'm sure there's plenty of merit to that work. You might hear. Oh, I love Trimanesha. You, you might hear about that in a future segment. Um, that's Scott Joplin's opera that, that always gets described with, with, as a ragtime opera, even though it's a, it's, it's a full-on musical drama. There are many points for and against Lidgeby, but it's important that we not just memory whole works like this and blame it on shifting t- tastes and genres, because it's generally more complicated than that. And this 
work overall is a has an important message that really need people need to be reminded of at all times and it's an opportunity to hear some absolutely stunning singing and if we're ready to go home i'd like to take it take us out with a clip from the the big duet from act two with uh martina arroyo and juan de sabate just proving why we should do this work Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Opera Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, Opera Philadelphia. What don't they do? They're amazing and incredible. And they've really. And I hear they have amazing cream cheese. That is, that is what they say. <laughs> Opera Philadelphia is taking its next step into the future of the art form with the launch of the Opera Philadelphia channel, a global broadcast platform that will bring a new season of performances into your home via your television screen or streaming device. So just to be real, I mean, everybody is trying to figure out how to present opera online. And I actually trust Opera Philadelphia to give us something interesting that we will want to engage with and not feel like we're watching out of duty to our friends some people aren't trying to figure out what to do online they've already figured it out that would be opera philadelphia all right launching this fall the opera philadelphia channel will feature a series of commissions by visionary composers and dynamic performances produced for the screen audiences can expect new presentations of david t little's soldier soldier songs and Hans Werner Hense's Il Cimarron, as well as Lawrence Brownlee's performances of Cycles of My Being by composer-in-residence Taishan Sori. Yeah, you know, no one does Werner Hense in this country, so that is reason alone to subscribe to the Opera Phila channel. Oh, it's, it, I, I, whenever I'm DJing at the club, I always pump up my Hans Werner Hense. Yeah, I we love know. it so much. We know. You are not as, going to be my DJ for my wedding, so... As an avowed Lawrence Brownlee stan, I will be tuning in for that. Annual subscriptions are priced at $99 and will be offered along with pay-per-view options for individual performances. For more information, go to operafilla, that's P-H-I-L-A, dot org. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. In a move that surprises absolutely no one, Placido Domingo is out to clear his name. Speaking out for the first time since being diagnosed with COVID-19, Domingo is denying allegations of sexual harassment. He said, quote, I've changed. I am no longer afraid. When I found out I had COVID, I promised myself that if I made it out alive, I would fight to clear my name. I never abused anyone. I'll repeat that as long as I live. In the words of a certain Brady, uh, sure, Jan. When Little Rock, Arkansas's Opera in the Rock canceled a virtual stream of its 2019 production of Madama Butterfly, 
The company's leaders apologized, saying that, quote, the sensitive themes in this work may be offensive for Asian American communities. What they didn't say was that the cancellation followed a targeted campaign from Asian American groups accusing the opera company of yellowface. The messaging included what opera in the rock staff members have perceived as a physical threat. NPR's Tom Wizenga wonders if the pay-to-listen Met is a little tone-deaf. In a column last week, he writes, While a valiant endeavor, the concerts can't seem to shake off opera's fusty, aristocratic trappings. Since opera's social status has long been ranked with the moneyed classes, cue the minute-long Rolex commercial at the top of the show, you'd think the Met would, want, would try to play that down a bit with a widening wealth gap. Why not take this opportunity to rethink the image? Peter Gelb noted that the series is trying to keep our audiences in touch with our great artists. But if you are positioning your artists within li- in ridiculously luxuriant venues, how in touch with them are we really feeling? Studying an 18th century music manuscript in the Library of Congress, baritone Chris Herbert discovered the names of three women who are the first assumed female composers in the United States. An album of this a cappella music, curated by Herbert and recorded in a Lancaster, Pennsylvania cloister called Voices in the Wilderness, is due out next spring. Another piece from social justice warrior and conductor Brandon Keith Brown proclaims that, quote, it's time to make orchestras great again by making them blacker. He argues that orchestras, by embracing outdated notions of exclusivity, serve only white, wealthy patrons and donors, and that the only way to solve the problem is to, problem is to create relevance, rejecting the white supremacy inherent in classical music elitism. In his 20-year career, artistic advisor to Cincinnati Opera, bass Morris Robinson, says that he has never been hired, conducted, or directed by a black person. That's a comment that continues to echo weeks after he said it in the L.A. Opera panel discussion of black singers led by Janae Bridges last month. It became a famous because a lot of companies heard and said, whoa, holy shit, he's right, Robinson says. Progress? The Madrid Traviata we reported on a few weeks ago happened, and apparently without illness. 27 shows were offered in which the public followed the sanitary security measures implemented by the Teatro Real without any relevant incident occurring. Uh, After the relative success, the Teatro Real continues its path towards normality, preparing already for the opening of the next season with Umbalo and Mascara on September 18th. Note to other companies, tape six-foot boxes on your stage. No fans in Salzburg. That's not human fans. That's uh, 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 cooling fans. The management of the Salzburg Festival has decided to ban the usage of these cooling units during performances for safety reasons related to COVID-19. The festival has adopted strict hygiene measures in order to keep both the artists and audiences safe during performances. Quote, fans could spread infections, uh, infectious aerosols laterally, which is something that we would absolutely want to avoid said Lucas Crepaz, the uh, festival's commercial director. Those aerosols could be sucked up upwards by an air conditioning system instead. That's what he added there. And on this day, August 10th, in 1813, the birth of William Henry Fry, the first American composer to have a publicly performed opera. In 1825, the first performance of Mendelssohn's opera, Camacho's Wedding. That's for you, Oliver. Hmm. In 1880, pioneering African-American composer Clarence Cameron White was born. In 1893, the birth of composer Douglas S. Moore, the composer of Ballad of Baby Doe. That one goes out to our friend Ashley. In 1952, birth of American soprano Ashley Putnam in New York. And one for Weston. In 2007, the first performance of Peter Erdvers' Love and Other Demons. That's your two-minute drill. So that was soprano Ashley Putnam 
singing the rondo from the finale of Clemenza di Tito, which has, I think, the lowest notes that Mozart ever wrote for a soprano to sing. Um, and it's a and cr- that in the opera world is what we call going for it. <laughs> yes. Ashley Putnam is one of those singers that, like, you forget, like, yeah, she's out there and she's really good. Great tone, great actress, beautiful on stage. Uh, I'm a I fan. I think she teaches at Manhattan School of Music. Oh, is that what it is now? Okay. Well, that, yeah. was, that was a recording from 1991, which you can see on the YouTubes. Uh, and may I say, uh, may I be the first to say, Oliver, happy anniversary of 195 years, uh, still going strong uh, since your uh, wedding. No, thanks. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Mendelssohn, and I'm learning the more I, I listen to classical music and I'm trying to be more gender inclusive, that maybe Fanny Mendelssohn actually wrote some of Felix Mendelssohn's music, and we heard that from Odalini de la Martinez last week, that the famous songs without words were probably composed by Fanny, or some of them were at least, so anyway, um, I, I stand Mendelssohn's, both of them. Ashley Putnam died at Manhattan School of Music. Um, maybe we can be the first to congratulate Taswell Thompson, who's now the director of opera studies. Oh, we forgot and- to add that to the two-minute drill. Yeah, right. I'm going to hype hot it. Off, hot off the presses. He was literally hot off the presses. So he replaces Donna Vaughn, who had been at MSM for a number of years. Taswell Thompson, of course, acclaimed theater and opera director, playwright, librettist, teacher actor and just general all-round great guy what doesn't he do did msm what doesn't he do (laughs) so i don't know anything he doesn't do let's say hopscotch although he probably could if you tried that was announced earlier today that that appointment i i also wonder like weston what don't you do your impersonation of Placido Domingo, I mean, minus... I, I am world-renowned for my Placido yeah. Domingo impression. It just, sounds like the man himself is talking. Yeah, the Castilian uh, S's were just perfect, so... <laughs> yeah, I don't know what he's... It, this is one of those things, it, it's so frustrating that um, not, not only that, you know, he, he's still trying to defend himself after all this time, but that he's using his um, his illness and the sympathy around that to try to gain some points uh, is really uh, a little slimy, especially when you consider the fact that in Europe, apparently his career is just completely unaffected. So, you know, it's uh, it, it was a frustrating story to read, and so I just decided to let out some steam with my flawless Domingo impression. <laughs> well, the only time that I've heard you speak more passionately is usually about Animal Crossing. <laughs> That's the big two. Did anyone watch it of uh, the the Kaufman or the or the Renee Fleming concerts from uh, I've from, read from the Gilded Cages. I read Harry Rose's review of the Renee Fleming concert, and it made me actually want to watch it. He's such a good writer, um, but I, I sort of agree with Tom Heisiger's commentary about you know if they're trying to make the Met more accessible and show that these artists are down to earth, but yet you know it they're trying to make it also as opulent as possible. I really don't know what the balance is, but uh, yeah, it is pretty unrelatable. And 20 bucks is maybe a, a big ask for some people who want to enjoy this content, but right. you know, who has I 20 mean, bucks to spare right now? Yeah, their name Fleming concert um, uh, was, was quite good. Uh, the, the Kaufman though was um, the, the selection, even like what the, the pieces that were picked are, were such war horses. And so, the, the programming felt out of touch. I think he did a, a, a fine job with the pieces. I think that um, the marketing campaign said like 12 of the most strenuous tenor pieces. <laughs> exactly. And it's just like, it's like we've, we've heard them all before. I mean, it's impressive. Don't get me wrong, but it's also it's not a competition. Right. <laughs> it, it, it felt, it, it did feel very out of touch and the vibe of that in the very fancy setting, paying um, a bunch of tickets, uh, ticket money, is something that I think uh, it, it feels very at odds with the general sort of COVID spirit that has been um, pervading most opera companies where people are giving out their opera recordings for free and having talks. And there's this, there, there feels like the, the divide between performer and audience member is lessening through the online space during these trying, trying times. Uh, and, I, and I feel like the idea that the Met is trying to re-erect that fourth wall with this sort of thing 
can be something that's very frustrating and something that perhaps is a little backwards looking at this particular moment in time. Five months into the pandemic now, right? The spirit of generosity is gone. And I don't know. <laughs> like, like, look, we, we need to start charging for art. Music should not be. Right. Free. We are now at the point when like this content, it does need to be monetized. But what you bring back for pay is now this this gilded cage, very fancy concert hall, bow tie, war horses. You're losing the originality of the content, the new works, the weird stuff that's just hanging around. That uh, new composers wanting to get their works out there. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's not so much the fact that it's that's for pay. It's that just that the the vibe is different now, and I don't think it's necessarily a direction. Uh, more progressive elements of the opera world would want it to go to. Looking about the minute-long Rolex commercial, I'm kind of <laughs> who should be advertising in the pit, like Nike. I, I, maybe, no. So, Weston, cleared up for us. Did you did you watch both of these? I watched uh, a, a little bit of the Kaufman, and I've watched the uh, Rene Fleming. So you you spent forty bucks to do this? No, 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 no. Uh, there was a pirated version online for the Kaufman. <laughs> okay, I see. <laughs> not to not to get uh, paint a target on my back. Okay. Uh, and the Renee Fleming, my my dad bought for me. It was a little gift, you know. Okay. What do you think would make you want to spend twenty bucks on something like this? I mean, for me, it's something a, a little bit more programmatically adventurous i think what we have here obviously you're never going to replicate the experience of an opera or even really an art song uh recital without that live element so i think that if we can't have that online uh if we can't have that live element we have to embrace what the the limitations of what we're having to see it through i want to see new things a in interesting methods of presentation. A few weeks ago, I mentioned uh, uh, there was that production of uh, a cut-down Hansel and Gretel done entirely through Animal Crossing, not to bring up uh, Animal Crossing again, but, you know... You can't help it, you know. I can't <laughs> help it. These are the kinds of things that, you know, this is, uh, this is a moment for op- uh, opera people to prove that we are, you know, we're with it. We know, we know what the online space is like, especially in this era where so many people are, you know, uh, uh, putting feet in their mouths all the time on the internet because they don't understand the, the, the world around them. Because to not understand internet culture and what's happening around you on the internet is to not understand the 21st century. So, and so to bring back this sort of basically just a, a, a stream from a big, you know, empty concert hall with all these warhorse operas, doesn't feel like the right way to go. Even though I do enjoy seeing these big stars and you know having an opportunity to hear them again, we need to be embracing these limitations and finding ways to make that part of the online opera experience. Matt, for you, what would make you open up your wallet to watch one of these things? I mean, I I just think that the to, the presenting this way isn't taking advantage of the medium because. The fact that you already have the screen as a distancing element, mm-hmm. there is the chance to make it a little bit more warm and inviting and personal. I thought that the, um, that the gala did that really well. Mm-hmm. It, it right. brought people in, and to bring back that formal that you know the the formal audience of like not addressing them during the during the performance just feels like you're putting up a brick wall that al- that already exists from the fact that you have to watch it electronically. And so you're like doubling down on the distancing yeah. the audience mm-hmm. when really this is an opportunity to bring people in and, and make them feel included. And show them what it really takes, what, what skill we have and what preparation goes into as opposed to just getting up there and like singing the hardest things in the world, you know, on an, in an empty stage. And, and like you said, feeling that distance. George, what about you? What would make you dip into the old piggy bank? The, the Matt needs to embrace the screen. And what they need to do is they need to start making music videos with their fabulous artists singing these arias. I want narrative. I want story. I want something experimental. And I want something that people are going to talk about for better or for worse. And for me, that is the music okay. video. So you want, more, is, you want more production. What you well, want. This, is, 
This is something that I think the Met can do because it's done it before. The reason the Met is as big and important or an organization as it is is because it embraced radio. It was one of the first uh, companies to really have a name for itself in the radio world. And then, of course, later on with the live and HD productions. And, and, and uh, they, used the to, they used to tour all over yeah, the and, and the touring as well. Uh, and uh, and, and the, uh, the 80s sort of television broadcast, they've embraced these different media before and been very, very successful with it. And, and if you're going to embrace new media in the 21st century, that's the Internet, baby. So um, nobody asked me, but um, I'm going to dovetail <laughs> off of what Matt said. And when we watched that Met Gala, one of the most successful performances was Erin Morley accompanying herself at the piano, which was... <clears throat> Thrilling because she sang so incredibly, but it was also so personal, and um, it just it felt really intimate. You saw like what goes into doing something like that, and how much preparation, and like her having to like pause the playing of the piano to sing a cadenza, and like sort of prepping herself and sitting up just a little bit straighter, and like turning her head so she could prepare her voice. You know, like that stuff is so cool. I'm like I love Cecilia Bartoli's little homemade videos, which are done probably with a cell phone, but they're so sweet. And then a couple of weeks ago, we heard that um, those Margaret Bond songs that they're making an album. And there was like that really soulful baritone or that bass baritone who was like, that stuff is like very moving to me because I actually can't sit at my computer for an hour watching something like that. It has to, right. I feel like it has to be shorter, the content, uh, or it has to be spectacular enough, as maybe George is suggesting, for me to want to, you know, move it over to my TV screen and like figure out that whole you know, how to how do I stream it to my bigger, more comfortable viewing space, you know? So I don't know. I, I'm not saying that the Met isn't trying to do something original here. And I know that we're all in the learning process, but I do think that maybe they should listen to us and invite us on as consultants. <laughs> <laughs> Man, if we had a nickel for every time the Met should have listened to us. Yeah, right? <laughs> is, is anyone else totally not surprised that the Salzburg Festival is not using fans. It's Europe. They don't have fans. They don't believe in fans. They are a stinky, smelly people. And we still love them, and we still go and see all this. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just very excited for all of our European fans to just take that quote completely out of context yeah. and just cancel George. That's, that's a show title right I have there. nothing to do with this. This is all George, everybody. I've been that sweaty guy in Germany. I mean, I lived in Germany for a couple of years, you know? Drink. I've been that, thanks. I've been that sweaty guy, and like, you know, that's, that's just life. I thought that the no, fans we, we, actually like helped the air circulate, but yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting the BO right now. I'm just imagining it. Ugh. I think I think they the fans help to like extract it, as Lucas Capaz said. "Quote: Those aerosols should be sucked upwards." Mm-hmm. So that's like where the extraction fan kind of. Comes See, in. I was picturing like a handheld fan, not necessarily electronic, but like <laughs> no palm like fronds at Salzburg, yeah. <laughs> everyone. No palm fronds. Yeah, that production of Aida is going to be really tough. This quote by Morris Robinson. I I haven't I've got this LA Opera webinar panel discussion on my YouTube queue and I haven't gotten to, to it yet. Um but boy is it going to the top of the list. I mean I just want to see Robinson say this. That say, is, say the S word. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I can imagine him saying the S word, but the fact that in his twenty year career he says he's never been hired, conducted, or directed by a black person. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we we keep hearing a lot in these discussions by um, black artists and artists of color that, you know, it's it's not enough. And I've said it again. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's not enough to just have the most front facing cast members be people of color. It needs to be part of the institution structure, that diversity that um, uh, those different perspectives, the the knowledge of what people are going through what needs to be represented artistically that part is so even more important i would say and to have have a sentence like that someone like morris robinson to have never been hired by a a black person or conducted or or directed is is just so it, it made my stomach drop when i read that it's frustrating because it's in the realm of possibility to fix this gross problem it's not like it's impossible 
We're right. asking people to sprout wings here, right? Like this is very, this is very doable. It's so That's easy. It's frustrating. All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, good call, bad call. Oliver, why don't you go first? So next week we're going to talk to this new production slash media opera company called Osea. And uh, if you you might have seen some of their sponsored posts on Facebook, if you're a Facebook user, and one that was out last week was Marcus Shields, who used to be a Chicagoan and he's now a stage director, um, talking about Ian Bostridge. And it's a really slick video where he pays homage to Ian Bostridge with all his weird quirks and whatnot. And it's so delightful. And if this is an example of what OC is trying to do, I'm very curious. And uh, I'm going to hopefully get one of those guys on the show for us next week. Over to myself. I went to a Carillon concert this evening. Ooh. And uh, I think it's probably the only... One of the few ways that one can experience live music physically different. Where, where was this Carillon concert? Uh, it was here in Michigan. Oh, you're in Michigan right now. Okay. Yeah, I lied when I said I was in the Ravenswood studio. Mm. <laughs> he can't be trusted, folks. Weston, what do you got? Well, um, this is kind of an old one at this point, um, but I keep forgetting to put it in the good call because uh, every time I hang up, I, I, I close my eyes and it haunts me. Uh, basically, the official uh, Philip Glass account, the real checkmarked Philip Glass Twitter account, has retweeted, uh, as at the time of this recording, twice um, a, uh, <laughs> a meme... Uh, which involves Nintendo's Toad character with long, muscular legs. And, and it just, it, it, there's just something about that. Philip Glass seeing this tweet saying, that's a very funny tweet with Philip Glass's music, my, my music in the background, and this large, uh, muscular, le- muscular-legged Toad man from Nintendo. And, and he just pressed retweet. And I, I love it so much. It's really indescribable. It's almost transcendent, really. And I can't wait for more uh, muscular leg toad content from Mr. Glass. I think you might be the only person, like, in the world who the Venn diagram of people who appreciate, like, Philip Glass <laughs> and opera and, like, video games, uh, the intersection. So that one was just for you. Just for me. <laughs> Matt Cummings. I mean, it's not Carillon, but we were teased today to find out that there's going to be some new musical content coming our way soon from Lisa Oropesa, an amazing soprano who announced that she has a five-year exclusive record deal and that her first uh, album is going to be uh, Mozart concert arias, which mm. are cuckoo bananas. Ooh. And it is going to be a wild ride, I'm quite sure. Can't wait. So congrats to her. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram or Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho for Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera during bizarre weather events. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, August 19th, with more about the provocative new opera production company, Ossia. Plus more opera headlines, more hot takes, more breaking wind. Join us. Mm-hmm.